I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, or you can turn to page 3 in your worship bulletin if you'd like, because the same text is there. I'd like to lead us in prayer, make a couple of comments, and then bring us into the, the reading of the portion that we're going to be focused on today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Though what would be happening here is not just a speaking and a hearing, but a working of your Holy Spirit present among us, binding us together in the Lord Jesus Christ as his church. Amen. I just want to say, you know, if you've attended church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with 1 Timothy chapter 3. You've heard about it. That's the chapter that talks about the qualifications for uh, deacons and also for elders. And we read these every year as a church. I think what's easily overlooked, however, is the last three verses of the chapter. Because these, these verses are important. These verses are actually Paul's justification for elders and deacons, his justification for the high qualifications that are laid on elders and deacons. And as a matter of fact, this overlooked conclusion of the third chapter of 1 Timothy 3 really undergirds the entire epistle. So I want to begin, actually, with verses 14 to 16, and then I'm going to refer back to the text uh, that we're more familiar with. But our focus will be on these last verses. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. Well, what's Paul saying to the church here? He's saying, I have an urgent message for you. I have a very urgent message. In fact, if I can't deliver it soon and in person, uh, you need it now. So I'm writing this message to you now. And what Paul's writing about, actually, is the ordering, the ordering of the church's life in Christ. And by church, this is not an abstract concept. By church, it's you, it's me, uh, all who are Christians, who, who are committed to being the body of Christ. He's called us together. And it's about ordering our life. And to, the, to that end of ordering our life together, as he's been talking about in Timothy, uh, the end of that, the result of that, he describes in three different ways. He says, you are the household of God. He says, you are the church of the living God. And then he says, you are the pillar and the buttress or support or even foundation of the truth. Now, you think about those three, household of God, church of the living God, pillar and support of the truth. Why, any one of these can certainly justify the need for elders and deacons. Any one of these can explain why the qualifications for the office are, are, are so high. But here there, there are three. And Paul says to the church, he says to us, he says, I'm writing you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, how you ought to behave. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? 
Both the NIV translation and the New American Standard translate this, how one ought to conduct himself, which I actually think is, is more useful, perhaps a little bit more helpful. Think about the idea of conducting, conducting ourselves. Probably uh, won't take any imagination for you at all to realize that the word conduct is closely related to the word conduit. Conduit, as you know, refers to pipe. So if you can imagine, if you will, a whole fistful of wires that has to be brought together, that has to be straightened out, and then it has to be moved forward through something challenging like the wall of a building, you understand why there's such a thing as conduit. This is why you bring these, how you bring all these different wires together, how you straighten them out, how you snake them through the building. You use a pipe. You use a pipe that's called a conduit. And what Paul is really saying to us here is he says, I'm writing in such a way, the reason I'm writing as I am about elders and deacons and so forth is to bring us together, to straighten us out, so we all can move forward together as the church, honoring our Lord. So we're building each other up, so we're worshiping together, in God's presence, and so that we're promoting and defending the truth of the gospel. So all this about elders and deacons, the qualifications, these descriptions that he's given to us, they're about that thing. This is what we're striving for. This is why we're doing this. And I want to consider each of these three with you for a few moments this morning. He calls us the household of God. And household really means family. It refers to family. We know that. It could refer to house or building, but it refers to family, and we know that because he's already ref- used this term three times in chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 12. He's referring to the family. We're the family of God. Not in some schmaltzy way, but genuinely. Hebrews 3, 6 says that Christ is faithful over God's family as a son, and we are indeed His family. We are his family if we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. We really are his family. You remember the day when when people came up to Jesus and he was teaching his disciples inside a house and they said, you know, Lord, your your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. That's your family. Go to them. He said, wait a minute. Who is my mother, my brothers, my sisters? Is it not those who hear and believe what I'm teaching? We are his family. He really views us as his family. Now think with me for a moment about what it is if you're the head of a family. Many of you are. The number of you can imagine what it is to be the head of a family. What's the head of a family concerned about? Well, we want want everybody to be safe, don't we? We want everybody to be healthy. We want everybody to be thriving personally and growing. We want people to be loving each other more and more. And if we're the head of a family, we also feel deep responsibility to provide for our family members and also, parents, you can relate to this, to be extremely fair, to be fair with everyone, right? We want to be fair. People think we're just. We don't want to be accused of being unfair. This is all very important. Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he compared himself to a nursing mother. Because he was sharing his very life with the church as his family, not only the gospel, and also because he held them so dear to him. And then four verses later in 1 Thessalonians 2, he compares himself to a father who exhorts and encourages and challenges the church to rise to her calling and to 
to his purpose. I mean, he does this. He views the church as his family because it's God's family. And he belongs to God. And so we do really have this relationship together of a family. You remember in the parables, the Lord Jesus taught the parable of the just and faithful steward. Steward is a manager of a household. In fact, the Greek term for steward includes the word house or family uh, in it. It refers to the person a master has put in charge of managing his family, seeing that their needs, especially their needs for food, have been met. So the steward was a servant of his master, and he served his master well by serving his master's family well. Well, elders and deacons are really profoundly stewards of God's family, of us. And this explains why, it explains why so many qualifications about the life of elders and stewards, has, uh, elders and deacons, has to do with how they live at home with their own families, how they conduct themselves with their own families. Do they faithfully love their spouse? Do they practice hospitality? Do they raise their children in the faith? Do they know how to control their temper? Do they limit their use of alcohol? Do they model generosity and graciousness? Of the elders, Paul wrote, if someone does not know how to manage his own family, there's that stewardship concept, how will he care for God's church, which is stewardship concept of the, of, for the church of our elders? So it's our job, it's our task. We're the family of God. And elders and deacons are responsible, really responsible to foster in us this truth and this reality. You know, I realize that people today, especially Americans, because we're so individualistic, we can really struggle with becoming the member of a church, whether that's a good idea. Even though we're Christians, we love the Lord, but we can struggle with it because it does involve a commitment not only to receive instruction, but even to receive correction from the church. Of course, no one's more subject to correction in the church than the officers themselves, but I do understand the hesitation. But this is what I would ask you all to think about today also. I'd ask you to remember what you saw and what you just did here this morning. You who are members took one vow to honor and support our officers, our elders and deacons. But did you notice that our elders and deacons take seven vows to honor and to support you? Really, their obedience, the burden of their obedience, really is the greater. And I want to say also to my elder brothers and my elder or my deacon brothers and sisters too, it is true that the measure of our care for this congregation is the measure of our care and our love for Christ. Well, Paul also calls us the church of the living God. And church means the people God calls together as his worshipers. This New Testament word church is the equivalent of the Old Testament word for assembly that was used for the children of Israel when they were gathered to worship in the wilderness. It's the word that Jesus coined when he said, I will build my, my church. And most often when you see the phrase in the Bible, the living God, the living God, it's in a context where worshiping together is in view. It's dealing with our worship, that it is the living God 
with us, who dwells with us, the living God, not an idea, a concept. It is the living God who dwells with us when we are worshiping him. There may be a hundred different reasons here. 200 reasons? I don't know. There may be a hundred different reasons that you come to worship. But this is why Christ comes to worship. Christ comes to worship to meet with us, to receive our worship and to meet with us. And I've said this a couple times over the last year, and uh, I'm going to repeat it again. I realize we talk, it's our, lingu- it's our language, it's what we're used to. We talk about going to church, but that just has it so wrong. We, that's outsider language. The insider language, honestly, the biblical language, the believer language is we are the church. And so we go to worship. Because we are the church, we come to worship. We come to worship together. It's the DNA of what we are as Christian people. We come to worship Christ in his presence. This is the heart of our life. And without deacons and elders, our worship simply is not sustainable Honestly, it's not sustainable. So our elders are responsible for ministries of the word. As you know, our deacons are responsible for making that possible, those ministries possible. Yes, yes. Worship of God together weekly is to be our highest personal priority. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that for myself. And it is our highest personal priority when our sense and our identity of ourselves is really wrapped around this, that to be a Christian is to be a worshiper of Christ. And we join with God's people to worship Christ, which the world will not do, but we surely do. And it is not some mild thing to us. It is our most important priority. This is the creator and the savior and the Lord over all. It affects everything. You remember the Old Testament saints, they were just drilled into saints, that they're to, they're, they're to be worshipers. And they would not taught, they were taught and they believed it. They would not tolerate anything unclean or lawless in their lives throughout the week that might ruin their conscience for worship. The worship is God commands worship. And I want to say this is this is hard. This is affecting everything. Worshippers. We are the church of the living God. And elders and deacons exist and serve so that this is sustainable, that this really is our reality. And this begins, this intolerance for what is unclean and lawless, it begins with the elders and with the deacons, but it applies to all of us. Thirdly, Paul says that we're the pillar and support of the truth. Now his truth, what does he mean by truth? Well, I'm going to define it or explain it this way because I think it's accurate to the context. The truth is, he refers to is the historic and the eternal truths of Christ. It's the historic truth about Christ and it is the eternal truth about Christ. And in this very beautiful hymn that Paul then pens and writes for us, he makes this point in each of its three stanzas. And I think it has three stanzas. I don't think it's divided into two parts, as your ESV translation suggests with the formatting. Three stanzas. It says he was manifested in the flesh, historically. We confess that. We defend that. We believe that. He was vindicated by the Spirit. It's eternal. And we believe that. 
and we confess it. He was seen by angels. That's eternal. That's everlasting. It's true. He was proclaimed among the late nations. That's exactly what's happening historically, and we're committed to that. He was believed on in the world. Yes, coming to faith in Christ. We are committed to that. In the great commission and the mission of the church in the world, it's historic. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. That's eternal. We believe the historic and the eternal truths of Christ. And the church is the pillar, Paul says, and the support of that truth. The historic and eternal truth about Christ. Now what is it saying to us? What does that really mean? Well, pillar was used to, you know what pillars and columns are used for. They're, they're used to hold things up. To draw something up high. To draw attention to it. So it can be seen and appreciated. And a support or buttress or foundation, the other term, it's used to stabilize something. It's used to keep it steady. And Paul's saying here that we exist as a church to lift up the truth of Christ before the world and we're to hold on to it as well. We are to preserve it against error and attack. In other words, our task, you know, our mission, as it were, is evangelism, and it is apologetics, it is proclamation, and it is sound teaching. We are the pillar of the truth, but we're also the buttress of the truth. We seek to, to hold it up, to protect it, to defend it when attempts are made to shake it down. And to ruin it. You say, but wait a minute, Kurt. I mean, isn't the truth just the opposite? Isn't really the opposite? That the truth is our foundation and support. And that the, the, the truth is, you know, that the truth is our pillar. That the truth holds us up. Well, certainly that's the case. They're both true. But John Stott has put it very simply this way. Yes, the church depends on truth for its existence. It is our foundation. It is our support. But the truth depends on the church for its defense and for its proclamation, the eternal truth of God. No one else in the world will do this. No one. No one else in the world can do this. Christ calls us and he equips us for just this purpose. And to that end, he also gives us elders and he gives us deacons. So, so, when our text says, in the very first verse of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is being elder, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires, he desires a noble task. Now we understand why that's so. Why it is a noble task. What is noble about it? And the same is true of deacons. They also, who aspire to serve, are aspiring after a noble task. And that's implied, actually, in verse 8 of chapter 3, when it begins, deacons likewise. It is a noble task to be an elder. It is a noble task to be a deacon because you're worth it. Because you, the church, are worth it. Because the church is worth it. To serve as a steward in God's home, in God's family, to accept and help bear responsibility for his worship, to put yourself forward to uphold and defend the historic and the eternal truth of Christ, it is a good work. It is a good work that you're doing. 
But who's adequate for it? Who's adequate? Every year we ask people if they'd be willing to serve as elders and deacons, and they decline, and they explain why, and in terms the qualifications for the position are so high, or because the job description, as we're focused on today, seems to be so beyond reach, it seems to be such a stretch. But let me just say to you this morning, to all of us this morning, Paul commends in the first verse of chapter 3, aspiring to serve as an elder, or aspiring to serve as a deacon. Aspire. Sounds like it has to do with breath. Expire, inspire, aspire. It's not the case in Greek. Aspire means literally to stretch yourself. It literally means to stretch yourself out, to reach for what is beyond your reach because you desire to serve Christ. And Paul says of deacons, which is also true of elders, down in verse 13, he says those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. So remember, elders and deacons, and remember congregation, brothers and sisters, you who may be approached this coming year, remember this, remember this. Confidence does not come in accepting the opportunity to serve. It comes in the stretching that goes along with the service. Confidence, a sense of standing, you know, kind of a firmness, that confidence comes in learning and in experiencing the Holy Spirit's work and the Holy Spirit's help as we stretch ourselves to be Christ's servants in this way. In us and through us he works, but also in others and through others he works. And when you're in that position, it is a glorious and it is the most beautiful thing to experience God's work and to sense his wisdom among a body of people who've been called to lead and serve that is so much greater than our own individual wisdom. It is the work of God, but that's when the confidence comes. Don't think it comes at the beginning. It doesn't come in accepting the call. Am I confident I can do this? People are confident they can do that. I'm a little worried about them. If they sense it's going to be a stretch to do this, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to stretch yourself out to serve. Well, what you've witnessed today, brothers and sisters, in ordination and installation of officers, I'm just saying to you, saying to all of us with joy, I hope, this is the work of God. That he who has begun a good work in us for 70 years, this church's 70th anniversary is this year, he who has begun a good work in us continues so that we do build each other up as God's family, so we worship together in God's presence, and so that we promote and defend the truth of the gospel. That's what has happened here today. That God be the glory. Great things he has done and great things he will continue to do. May the Lord be with us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask you to apply it to our lives and hearts, to give courage and encouragement to our brothers and sisters who are serving as, as elders and as deacons. And Lord, encouragement to all of us as a congregation to be praying for them, assisting and supporting them. Lord, that we can all learn from each other. And there are some men and there are some women here, maybe youth, I'm sure, as well, who not yet reached 
that age of adulthood, but there are men and there are women here who one day will be doing what they thought was too much of a stretch for them, being an elder or being a deacon. And we thank you for your ongoing work that enables the church to be sustained and to thrive in its love and service for you. Amen.